Jason Owen here, stoking your zeal for the things of God in Christ. We have been pondering God's deliberate, intentional way of making sense of what's gone horribly wrong in our world. For example, while Adam's sin brought death, Jesus' obedience brought a promise of the resurrection, and it's consistent with God's character, doing all things decently and in order, that the resurrection occurs in very specific order. First, Christ, the first fruits. Second, those who are alive at his return. That's called the first resurrection. And thirdly, finally, those who will be raised for judgment in the second resurrection, which is never really called the second resurrection, but the second death. In short, the resurrection is a real thing, and it will happen in the time and sequence prescribed by God. Today's text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, picking up where we left off, starting in verse 29, reading from a New King James Version. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, well, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the doing of his word. Right there in verse 29, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? <laughs> Very interesting passage, right? If the dead do not rise at all, that's the dilemma here. The effects of denying the resurrection. What will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, there's no evidence in the scriptures that we are to baptize people who cannot make a confession of faith, who cannot demonstrate some sort of repentance or confession of repentance. We don't have any evidence in the scriptures that we are to baptize people who can't express a faith in Jesus Christ. For example, baptizing infants, baptizing the unconscious, and in this case, baptizing uh, the dead or being baptized for the dead or on behalf of the dead, those who have physically died. If you have some Mormon friends, some Latter-day Saints, this is a huge practice in the Mormon church. In fact, the last time I checked, one of the largest gene genealogical uh, organizations is in Utah because the Mormons go to great lengths of finding deceased family members or friends or other people they may be related to, I suppose, and being baptized in the Mormon temple on behalf of the dead, perhaps giving that person who is who has physically died the opportunity to maybe believe in this baptism by proxy 
and ascend from the telestial kingdom, maybe to the terrestrial kingdom, or to the celestial kingdom, the heaven, I should say, not kingdoms, but these three levels of heavens and Mormon theology. This is not biblical theology. Perhaps that's a whole other Bible study. Uh, maybe I should do a a study on the Mormon church and how that came to be. Nevertheless, there's just no evidence in the Bible, in the New Testament, nor the Old Testament, that we are to baptize people who can't make a confession of repentance, faith in Christ, and this includes those who have physically died. The key word here, I think, in understanding this passage, because the question is, you know, what was going on? Were there people in the New Testament church, in the early church, who were being baptized for the dead? Some Bible translations interpret that as baptized on behalf of the dead. I think the key word here is they. Paul says, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Well, if the dead don't rise, why do they baptize for the dead? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Transition there between verses 29 and 30 because he says, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. So there's this transition of there's they and there's we, like us, and then there's me. Here's my experience, he says. Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, lived between the year of our Lord, 153 and 216. He had something to say about Gnostic teaching and the pagan practices. He mentioned in his writings the heretical Gnostic practice of baptisms on behalf of the dead. And we know, we know through the New Testament writings that writers like John spoke and wrote against Gnostic teaching. The Gnostics were invading the early church. We find a huge Gnostic library that was found in Alexandria, Egypt. And what we find is that the Gnostics borrowed from the Christian writings, and they borrowed from the church, not the other way around. The church fathers did not borrow from Gnostics when they were uh, sharing their theology that was passed down through the apostles. Tertullian, also another church father, he wrote against Marcion's Gnostic practices. In the year of our Lord, 207 to 232, he, in his writings, he he mentioned specifically Marcion and Marcion's disciples uh, were apparently practicing baptisms by proxy, baptisms on behalf of the dead. Now, the Gnostics, from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know, they had some interesting beliefs, and they believed, you know, they had to have the special gnosis, the special Gnostic secret understanding of God in order to come into a relationship with God. One of their beliefs is that anything that was of matter was inherently sinful, so much so that God would never become flesh. We, the Son of God, Jesus, had to have been a phantom. There's no way that God, who's so holy, would put skin on, would become matter, because that's just far from 
the Gnostic, the Gnostic God position, uh, similar to, in my assessment, similar to Islam. It, it, if you read the Quran, you know Allah says over and over again that he he is not a father. He does not have sons or daughters, and far be it from Allah to have sons or daughters. And and it's just a far, so far removed from the God of the Quran to condescend, to become human, to be the son of God and interact with humans in that way. That's, that's just uh, different, a different God, so-called, from the God of the Bible. And so what will they do who are baptized for the dead? You know, <laughs> the, our pagan friends and their practices, why are they doing what they're doing if the dead don't rise at all? If there's, if if each and every person does not have within them, because God put it there, eternity in their hearts, knowing that there has to be something more, why are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour, he says in verse 30? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I die daily. Well, just before that, why do we stand in jeopardy? every hour. If there's no resurrection, and if this life is it, why then do we willingly experience danger for the sake of the gospel? Why do any missionaries go anywhere in the mission field throughout the world and put themselves in danger if this is it? And there's no resurrection, there's no life after death. death. Why go through any kind of peril for the gospel's sake. Paul was constantly in danger. If you're able to turn with me, I'd like to share with you from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 to 33, and Paul sharing his story and his sufferings for Christ. And he speaks about others who claim to know the Lord and claim to be something special in Christ. And he says, hey, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Remember, some of the other false teachers in the early church were the Judaizers. These were Israelite folks of Jewish descent, maybe even Christians, but went around teaching that you had to become circumcised and keep the law of Moses if you wanted to be a real Christian. They were Hebrews of the Hebrews, you know. Again, very similar to Gnostic teaching. You have to be in that inner circle and have this special kind of knowledge. But are they Hebrews? Paul says, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I'm more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. That means he was been been whipped and beaten beyond measure, more than he can count. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, 
in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who's weak and I am not weak? Who's made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor of Eretus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through the window in the wall and escaped from his hands. And here's a guy saying, man, if anybody else thinks that they've gone through anything, hey, I want you to know this. Yeah, I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite, the seed of Abraham. I'm a minister of Christ, maybe even more so. I've suffered more than anybody I know, he says. Now, they've kind of driven Paul to this point of boasting, but he makes it very clear that what he has to share in his resume is a lot of suffering. Why do we stand in jeopardy? Why do we stand in danger every hour? If there's no resurrection from the dead, if this is it and there's nothing to look forward to after this, why on earth would we do that? Because there is a resurrection, because there is a Jesus. He is raised from the dead and what he's told us about life after death and judgment to come is true. Again, Paul shares a little bit of his testimony in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 7. He says, whatever things were gained to me, what things were gained to me, These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Literally means like poop. They're all just like nothing to me that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. That's the law of Moses. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Man, Whatever things I've accomplished, whatever I had to gain at any time, I've counted all that loss, not just loss, but like rubbish, man. That I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness, Paul says, but the righteousness that is accredited to us by faith in Jesus Christ. If we if we don't move on, if we don't live after we physically die, If there's no judgment to come, if there's no resurrection, why do we stand in this kind of peril? Why did Paul abandon everything and give it up? He says in verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. I die daily. Paul was a dead man walking. Dead man walking. You see on death row, that person walking out of their cell, down that passageway to the electric chair or lethal injection or whatever it might be. And they say, dead man walking. That guy is as good as dead. Paul was a dead man walking. He 
counted the cost. He gave it all up. He knew his earthly life was temporary. He knew that everything he had to gain on the other side was so much greater. And he, he said things like, for me to live as Christ, to die is to gain. And he boasted about the church. Part of this dying daily was his ability to boast in the church. In this case, the church at Corinth. I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. He saw the Lord do great things in them. And that moved him. I think that rejuvenated his faith. His trust in the resurrected Christ. When I witness God bringing dead things to life as a pastor, as a chaplain, as a Christian man, <laughs> when I witness God bringing dead things to life, when I see individuals come alive by faith in Jesus Christ, when I see marriages that were literally hemorrhaging before my eyes come back from the dead, when I see hopeless people in hopeless situations miraculously become hope-filled, I can't help but brag about what God is doing in them. I can brag, man. I can boast of my God. I can boast about people that have been in, in my office and sat on that couch, people on the ship, people in the, in the field, in the desert. I can brag about people that I thought, man, this situation is bad. And then I see God just bring dead things to life in them. It's encouraging to me. It's rejuvenating for me personally. And I say, man, that's my Jesus. Lord, you really did raise your son from the dead. Jesus, you truly are the son of God love that. We can't help but brag about what our God is doing in the lives of people, and we ought to be able to brag about what God is, is doing in our own lives. And I don't mean brag like it's us, but brag on our God, man. If in the manner of men, Paul says, I'm speaking like in manly, humanly, earthly terms, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, in verse 32, what advantage is it to me? What advantage is it to me if in the manner of men I fought with beasts, with like beastly, angry, riotous people at Ephesus? What advantage is that to me? Paul ministered in Asia for two years. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19. He stayed there for two years. The gospel almost put the metalsmiths out of business. Those metalsmiths who made shrines of Diana, the alleged goddess. And those metalsmiths got really, really angry and caused a huge uproar in the city, not just against Paul, but against some of the other Christians there and almost tore them apart. And Paul says, man, if in the manner of men I have fought with those kinds of beastly, angry, bitter, idolatrous, lost people, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, he says. <laughs> Man, if we don't rise from the dead, 
if there's no life after death, let's disregard all restraints and party. There's no reason to put ourselves in any kind of peril and danger. Let's live it up, man. But he follows that with, don't be deceived in verse 33. Don't be deceived, man. Evil company corrupts good habits. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Those who have bad theology, those who don't believe in God, those who don't believe in the resurrection or the coming judgment, will live like it. They'll live like it. Lifestyles, our lifestyles will reflect what and whom we believe and worship. And Paul's prescription for that, even the temptation of saying, hey man, if there's no resurrection, you know, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. His prescription for that is wake up. Wake up. Evil company corrupts good habits. In verse 34, he says, Awake to righteousness. Awake to righteousness. It means wake up to doing the right thing. Don't wake up with a hangover. Don't wake up to guilt for what you did the night before. Don't wake up to immediately conspire of how you can go and get your drink on or go, you know, indulge in other fleshy worldliness. Wake up to righteousness and don't sin. Some do not have the knowledge of God, he says. And I speak this to your shame. Wake up, open your eyes, don't sin. More than overeating, more than binge drinking. But embracing the fatalistic attitude that this is it. This is it. Some don't have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. What's he talking about? Paul is writing to the church. In this letter alone, he addressed the fact that there were quarrels and factions among them. Chapter 1, verse 11. There was envy, strife, and divisions among them. Chapter 3, verse 3. There was sexual immorality among them. In chapter 5, verse 1. There was poor judgment in chapter 6, verse 5. Disrespect for one another. Chapter 8, verse 12. They fellowshiped with demons. Chapter 10, verse 21. Some of them, this is the church, were receiving the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In chapter 11, verse 21. Here he's addressing the fact that there are those in the church who don't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. In chapter 15, verse 12, and he says, wake up. Be careful the company you keep. Open your eyes. Look around you. It doesn't mean to look at others with disdain and now you can't spend any time with anyone else who doesn't share the same beliefs or values, but it means you have to have your eyes open. And when you wake up, do righteousness. Don't sin. Be careful the company you keep. In application, I'll ask you, are you a dead man walking? 
Are you all in? I mean, do you really believe that you died with Christ? Did, did you really bury that old man in your baptism when you went under the water and came back up anew, believing that Jesus raised from the dead and that you raised up a new, a new person in Christ? Are you walking in the resurrection of Christ and in yours to come, or are you walking in flesh and doubt? This same Paul told us in Galatians 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, man. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life with which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you a dead man walking? When people see you and me, do they say that's someone who has really little to no regard for himself or receiving any kind of accolades or holding anything tightly in this world. He's not white-knuckling anything this side of heaven. That's a person who is dead to the things of this world, but alive in Christ. Second question I may ask, what advantage do you have? At some point, we have to ask ourselves this question, what advantage do I have in living the Christian life. Why do I choose to suffer anything for Christ and not just give in to the lusts of this world? What would your life look like unrestrained without the hope of something more, without the knowledge of, of judgment to come or, or the hope of eternity with Christ? When I think about the very idea of there being no God at all. And I've thought about that. I've been challenged. You've been challenged. If there's no God, I'm not sure I would like the version of me. I wouldn't be a very good dad. I'd be a worse dad and husband than I am now. That's for sure. If I had only to live for me. What advantage do we have? Man, in Christ, the benefits are awesome. The love and joy and peace and goodness, kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and things that God gives us in Christ. This fruit of his presence in us is evidence that Jesus is raised from the dead. He's alive. He is our advantage. He is our, our exceedingly great reward. Praise be to God for that. Finally, wake up. Wake up and do not sin. If you have the knowledge of God, live like it. I need you to hold me accountable and say, Jason, if you have the knowledge of God, live like it. Look around you. Be careful the company you keep. Be careful the company you keep. Look around. Keep your head on the swivel is what we say to one another. Keep your head on a swivel. Look around. Keep your eyes on Jesus, absolutely. But at some point, throughout your day and night, your head has to be on a swivel, man. You've got to be aware of what's going on around you. Left, right, front, back, above, and below. 
Be careful the company you keep. The enemy hates your guts. Satan lives to destroy you, to disable you, to murder you and the people closest to you. The enemy does not take leave. There's no vacation. And the enemy has been watching us. Satan, our adversary, has been watching us for a long time. The enemy knows our weaknesses. He knows my weaknesses, my habits. And there's plenty of things in my life I've got to get right with God. I need to wake up and not sin. Too many warriors have died at the hands of those they've trained. I think about Matt Manukian and Sky Moat and uh, Gunny Jeske, you know, and, and think about these Marines who were killed in, a, you know, and within the, the, their own compound at the hands of a person that they had trained. There are people in our midst, to the left and right of us, some conf- you know professing Christians, and they don't know the Lord. They're out for themselves. I'm not saying we live as skeptics and removing the tears from the church and going on a witch hunt. I'm just saying we have to have our wits about us and be looking around and uh, being on the offensive, having a strong defensive, serving the Lord, and being in hot pursuit of those enemies who who have done bad things to those we love. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age in the air all around us. And we fight with truth. Wake up. Don't sin. If you have the knowledge of God, live like it. Look around you. Be careful the company you keep. God bless you, my friends. Remember always, let God be true, but every man a liar. Be bold. Be courageous.